For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, World B. Michael Freer. And tonight we're thrilled to also be joined by special guest Brendan Brown. This is episode number 86, the Semi Erden and Chris Johnson episode, as both big men wore number 86 as part time members of Bruce's Boston Celtics during the 2011 NBA season. What are the odds of that? Before we start up a fun discussion with tonight's guests, just a quick reminder, with NFL playoffs here and the NBA season in full swing, BetOnline has you covered with all the -the up-to-the-second odds, news, and scores. With additional odds, lines, trends, and info on both desktop and mobile, you can access the world's best wagering information anytime. Head there today to get in on the action and see the updated odds. Remember, remember to use our promo code BLEAV, that is B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. And tonight, we're lucky enough to be joined by one of my former colleagues with the New York Knicks, Brendan Brown. To put it simply, Brendan has been a basketball lifer as the son of a Hall of Famer in Hubie Brown. Brendan has experienced it all, including having coached at all three levels of the game. He's been a high school coach. He was an assistant coach at the college ranks with Wake Forest, and he's also been an NBA assistant coach with the Memphis Grizzlies. He then went on to become an NBA broadcaster with the New York Knicks for over a decade and now currently works for SNY on a show he does with Ian Begley titled The Putback. Brendan, you were always one of my favorites to talk NBA hoops with while we were on the road with the New York Knicks. Definitely pumped to have the opportunity to do a get, do that same thing here tonight, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's a real pleasure, and you know, uh, as you're in the traveling party in the NBA, having been a video coordinator for six years, two years in college, four with the Nets, I always try to look out for the video guys, so that's yes, how I got connected to you. I know we had a lot of fun. I knew I had some questions. I wanted to ask you what you thought about you know, what guys' teams were running, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. You always challenged me and got the best out of me. And I always do appreciate that about yourself. And uh, you always did look out for me on the road and made sure I was doing all right. So it's very much appreciated. Now, as we get to our first quarter here, it was a big weekend for the Indiana Pacers as Pascal Siakam made his debut. And they also got a game out of Tyrese Halliburton, who returned to action. And while I must admit the results weren't quite there going 0-2 this past weekend with both Pascal and Halliburton, I think it is important to keep in mind that the Pacers were finishing up a grueling six-game road trip out west, which which concluded with three games in four nights. So, Brendan, I'd first love to get your thoughts on the overall trade, Siakam's fit, and do you see Indiana as any bigger of a threat out east now? I think you're going to have to let this go with a little bit of time to see what can be the true Siakam bump to Indiana's team. Now, if you've watched Siakam the last couple of years, um, he's very ISO-centric. He's very dribble-centric. 
And you would say, well, maybe guys I don't want to watch or might be a little bit selfish. He's going to be in the top of that list in Toronto. But now you're going to Indiana where it's all about team ball. It's all about being fun. Uh, Their starting lineup is 20th in the league in scoring. Their bench is number one. Uh, Rick Carlisle on certain nights will use this team, this group of guys, these two guys, these three guys. Whoever has it going, and then you play with Halliburton at the end of the game, I think one of the reasons why Indiana might have gotten Siakam is for the fourth quarter in four clutch games. Now, Indiana has a decent record in that situation. They average about nine and a half points a game in clutch games. Uh, Four points will come from threes. Two points will come from free throws. So that means they're only getting two twos in the last five minutes of these close games. Is Siakam the kind of guy you'll call his number? Because the Indiana offense is not a call-the-number type of a situation whatsoever. Like, whoever is open first, you shoot. So does Rick Carlisle go to Siakam and say, hey, listen, you know, this is the way it's going to work here. I know you're used to getting a lot of shots. You know, in Indiana, you could get 19 shots one night. You could get seven shots the next. So how's this going to play out? And so far... Last year for Nurse, Siakam averaged 18, 19 shots a game. This year for Darko, the new coach, about 16 shots per game. We have a two-game sample size, which means nothing, but Siakam did 14 and 14. So can you sell him on this is team ball, and whoever gets shots gets shots. Yes, we might play through you at the end of the game. We might use you and Halliburton together, pick and rolls, two-man games, what have you. But it's a different way for Siakam to play than he's played the last two, three years. You know, you mentioned Rick, who I consider to be one of the top coaches in the NBA and have felt that way for a long time. Now, you kind of gave us a little bit of an insight as far as what you think his role offensively could become. But I'm really interested in your thoughts on, I mean, this is a team who's giving up the highest field goal percentage against of any team in the NBA. They 50.4%, 50.4%, 30th out of 30 teams, give up a lot of points. They play at a fast pace. So, I mean, I know part of that plays into it. But what do you think his role on defense is going to be with this team? Well, I thought about this when I was trying to prepare the notes and uh, had the script and everything else. And I'm sorry, they're an offensive team. It, it doesn't matter what he does individually there. They're 27th in defensive rating for a reason. Now, are there situations? Let's go back to the clutch thing again. They're actually decent defensively in the clutch. Okay, they're not over the 48-minute part of the game, but can he help them by taking a two, a three, a four, and, and trying to guard, you know, at a certain point, one or two dribbles in an isolation or whatever it might be? Can he take a matchup for a short period of time that will help them? And you know they can tighten up a little bit on defense when you think that Miles Turner is a very good shot blocker in the back. Hal Burton's very good on the ball. Now you get Siakam involved, you know, tracing, denying, trying to pick up the first option. Is it going to be great? No, it might not be, but can it be better than what it is now? And that's where I think Siakam's defensive prowess could help out But when it comes to a 48-minute game, they're going to play the exact same way, offense and defense. They're going to run up and down, and they've had a lot of success with that so far this year. 
Brendan, what are your thoughts on Tyrese Halliburton? He had a you know a terrific game in the the loss to the Blazers the other night, seventeen assists, and I think I want to say like five of them went to Siakam and no turnovers again. And he, he once again just continues to put up these ridiculous numbers without turning the ball over. What's your impressions or what are your thoughts on him as a player this season? Uh, Halliburton has been absolutely fantastic. Um, when you look at his big games, when you look at the games where they beat Milwaukee and he has such major, uh, you know, assist games, and then he also doesn't commit a turnover the entire game, um, that's about as efficient as you can be. Uh, he's very good at the end of games. Uh, different teams, for some reason, no one really traps him very much at the end of the game in pick and rolls or even when he's just out front with the ball and isolations and uh, stuff like that. So he damages people if they don't guard him. He can make threes off the dribble. Uh, You bring your big at him late, he'll go around the big, he can score at the rim. And then what he's so good at is his vision going right to left into the lane. He can make great weak side passes, and he always picks out the right guy. So it's going to be someone who's extremely open on that team. They have great spacing, and you get everything with him. He's a great passer. He has the size to see over some help situations. And uh, I just think he's, you know, do you want to say he's the best point guard in the East right now? I mean, you can make some arguments in some different ways. uh, But with his size, he's a pretty good defender. Uh, He's just an unbelievable young player right now. Now, Brendan, looking at the uh, long-term plans with Pascal Siakam, do you have any concerns knowing that this guy is about to turn 30 in April and he's going to require a max contract? Do you have any concerns just about kind of his durability, you know, five years down the road here for a max extension with Indiana now that they've gone ahead and acquired him? I think that uh, that was a question for everyone who was thinking about – acquiring him like what are you doing because you only have him for 40 games and then what's going to happen you know promises no promises uh you're talking major money uh that's going to fill up your cap it's going to push you up you know to the tax then to the apron uh depending on how you build your team and yeah i do have concerns like how can you tell for sure and there's a couple of guys who are in this situation that whether they're, you know, unrestricted at the end of the year and they can melt off the cap and they might still come back to you. Um, there are a couple of guys like that that could be involved in the trade deadline. And I look at the Siakam thing. You know, Indiana's a small market. So yep. they don't get free agents or they get guys at the mid-level or veteran minimum, what have you. So this is like free agency for you. So how are you going to make it work? You know, I told you, 18 shots for Nurse, 16 for Darko, so far 14. Is he cool with that, playing that way? Because as long as Rick Carlisle is the coach and Hal Burton's the point guard, they're going to continue to play this way. Why would they not? And they're maximizing a lot of young guys and getting a lot out of a lot of role players playing this way. So, okay, Siakam's 30. It's a great point, Ross. What does he want to do? You know, does he want to play there after 40 games? You know, maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe they win in the first round of the playoffs. We have no idea how this is going to turn out, but it's a major, major situation for Indiana in their front office, um, no matter how they play it. 
you know, you're kind of sending me right into the question that I was going to ask, which basically is, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but it seems that a lot of the international players tend to do well in smaller markets like Indiana, you know, Giannis in Milwaukee, Joker in Denver, you know, Markinen in Utah, Pascal previously in Toronto, which isn't really a small market, but it kind of is by our, you know, standards in the NBA now. Do you have any opinion on this theory as to why it seems international players tend to feel more comfortable in the smaller markets, or am I just tripping here? Um, I think you throw out some very good examples. I think that's more by fate than like anything else. Um, I was with Pau Gasol in Memphis, and when we drafted him, I was with the team, and we had a very good draft. We traded uh, Sharif Abdurrahim to Atlanta, and that became the third pick, which became Pau. And then with our own pick, we took Shane Battier out of Duke, number six. And both those guys fit into Memphis really well. And you can't think of two different stories, one guy playing for FC Barcelona and the other guy playing for Duke. Um, I think Pau enjoyed that. Okay, that's my individual story with it. I think Pau enjoyed the smaller market. His parents came over you know, and lived there. And then little brother who was six, eight and about 325 pounds, a senior high school, he went back over to Barcelona, got himself toned up and turned out to be another great soul in Memphis. So I don't think you can totally put it together. Like, you know, great foreign player with small market. Uh, it has happened a lot, but I don't think that's a guarantee, but I do think, you know, Powell, I can always speak to Powell. I do think that his um, pride of being from like the Catalan region in Spain and his parents both being very uh, well-educated and doctors and professors, um, that sense of community of where he was from, for our Memphis community, like everyone loves basketball there. It can be high school at White Station. They love the college at Memphis State or University of Memphis. They love the Grizzlies, too. They loved everybody. But in sense of it being like kind of a smaller community for Powell than maybe Barcelona, um, he thrived in that. Uh, his brother thrived in that. And his parents, you know, really enjoyed that experience. Now, Brendan, moving right along here to our second quarter, R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly made their first return trip to Madison Square Garden on sat Saturday night with both youngsters having solid return games despite the outcome of that one. R.J. Barrett shot an efficient uh, percentage from the field, had 20 points, 8 rebounds, and quickly had a quiet scoring night but didn't really shoot the volume there, just putting up 12 points. Um, but he did hand out 11 assists. What, what, what were your thoughts on, on, on that first initial return for those two players? And then if I could get your thoughts just overall on that trade and what was your reaction when you saw that went down? Well, I'll talk about the trade first. And okay. I think it was a little bit of a situation. I mean, it would take a while to explain all the stories, but this was a situation where R.J. Barrett probably had to get out of the group or the group had to push him out. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything major there. I, I think you're just looking at a guy who wanted to be a little bit more than a third option. You know, he's in the right corner a lot in the half court. You know, the other two guys, Randall and Brunson, are so good. Brunson's so good on certain nights. 
um, that having a third guy there and needing touches and shots and even trying to play him with the second unit to try to fortify that role, um, nothing was working well there. And ironically, RJ got off to a great start, and then he got migraines. He missed some games, and then after that, he shot extremely poorly. So the morning of the trade, RJ was at 42 field goal, 33 from three. If you're making $25 million, you can't shoot those numbers. I don't no. care what your role is in the offense. So for the Knicks, could they find a taker? Because $25 million in three more years is a substantial contract. And that's how I think quickly might have slid into the trade. Uh, Nick fans, um, I think RJ for uh, OG straight up, everyone would say, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And that will fit that team and that will fit that team. But the shock value, I think, for the entire Nick group that quickly would be off the team after he played so well halfway through the year on last year and was doing much of the same this year, that was a shock. And I think the Nick fan still is trying to figure it out. Like, hey, this OG guy that we have now is really good, and he's a good defender. He's averaging 14, 15 points a game. Randall and Brunson are getting more shots. Steven Chenzo's getting more shots. Starting lineup is unreal now. It's gone from 15 in the league to eighth in the league in points per game in just 11 games. But quickly being gone, like when the bench comes in, who is the bench? And with McBride and Grimes and Hart and then Achua, you know, playing as the backup center, I think that's hard for the Nick fan to identify. So who is coming how can you get something out of the 14, uh, the Fournier $19 million, you know, expiring deal? If you have to put other stuff in there, what are you putting in there or who are you putting in there? Because that might be hard. And I think the Knicks are in a situation where you're looking for a minor move or a good bench supplementary move. There's plenty of guys out there. Clarkson's a great guy at 23 million and he he melts at the end of the season. So if you like him, you keep him. If you don't, you let him go and you would have the money off the cap. But like in reality, uh, the OG Ananobi defensive factor, he takes the first assignment. DiVincenzo gets pushed down to the second assignment. Brunson is third. They're hiding him anyway. DiVincenzo is so good off the ball coming from Golden State where you're encouraged to gamble, you know, the Ron Adams defensive assistant stuff. DiVincenzo learned more of that last year, and he's using it in New York. So you have a good defender on the ball. You know, defensive rating now is up in the top 10, and it was languishing before the trade. So, you know, for Toronto, they get two very good young pieces. Uh, both guys are shooting fairly well uh, up there. Quickly he's having trouble with twos which is something that played him earlier in his career, but he cleaned up, you know, second half of last year on. Barrett's shooting very well from two and three, so and quickly he's good from three. So they're not overdoing it. Uh, R.J. Barrett is shooting less in Toronto per minute than he did in New York. Quickly is shooting just about the same per minute than he did in New York. So, like, just because they're starting, they're not going haywire and shooting every time, you know, up the floor. I think as they mold around Scotty Barnes, you know, that's the future for their team. 
You know, New York fans, like our friend here, Mr. Freer, were always pretty disappointed in, in RJ. But, you know, he's still a pretty young guy, right? He's like 23 or something like that. So while Toronto on the surface looks like a less stressful stop, he's kind of going home, right? So are there other challenges that he's going to be faced with playing in his hometown that maybe casual fans, or even us for that matter, might not comprehend? Well, I got two things real quick before I'm going to answer that. Number one, Quickly is now playing against starting point guards all the time. And yep. that was a big situation in if the Knicks were to have kept him, how much would they have had to pay for him? But he's playing two-thirds or three-quarters of his minutes against bench guys. So now this is a good gauge on Quickly. Like, hey, you are the starting point guard now. What are you going to do? What are you going to shoot? Him shooting so poorly from two right now, that might have something to do with being a starter and playing a better defender. As for RJ, um, I got along with RJ really well uh, when I worked there and when I was the radio guy, and he approached me. I have no idea why, and that started a little bit of a friendship. That being said, um, you understand that the NBA is a business. Now, if you're a Knicks fan – after the first two games of the Cleveland series last year, everyone in town had Barrett on a ship going to Antarctica. Okay, everyone is killing this guy after the first two games. And then what did he do after that? He had eight good playoff games in a row. So while the wild inconsistencies of his shooting over his Nick career, this, that, and the other, when it came to the playoffs – and why they won against Cleveland and why they pushed the Miami series out. It's not until that very last game where no one scored in the entire lineup except for Brunson. I mean, R.J. Barry, you got to give him credit for those eight games in a row. And I think maybe in his mind, because he did have eight good games in a row, that when after the migraines and the shooting went bad, then his, I wouldn't say ego, but his persona couldn't take it. It couldn't take it that – I knew I did it in eight of the biggest 11 games of this season last year, of which he did. You go look up everyone's numbers and look at his numbers in the playoffs, and you're really going to be shocked. So is that what really matters if you're a Knicks fan now because you're going to make the playoffs a lot with Tom Thibodeau? Do you care about regular season, net rating, and all this other crap? No, you care about what's going to happen in the playoffs. And the second-best player offensively in the playoffs – for the Knicks last year, behind Brunson, who was off the charts, is R.J. or was R.J. Barrett. So now how do you fill the void? Here's the weird part of the trade and, and what we're talking about. Barrett and quickly are 33 points off the board. They're averaging 33 points in the trade. You get Ananobi back. Right now he's averaging in between 14 and 15. Let's give him two or three points of defense, team defense, like – Three points. So right now, Ananobi is worth 18, 19 points. And those two guys are worth 33. And they're averaging almost 40 in Toronto. If you get into simple math and you have a 13 or a 14-point differential on a trade, I know Achua is averaging like three points a game or four points a game. Do you have enough now mathematically, if you're the Knicks, when you scored – uh, 99 points a game against Cleveland in that series and one, and then you scored 100 points against Miami and you lost. 
And the reason you lost the Miami series is because your bench was outscored by 91 points in six games. They were outscored in all six games. Now, quickly missed three of those, okay? And Cody Zeller was the rim protector for Miami. Okay? (laughs) So it's a minus 91. Well, what kind of a team do you have now? The morning of the trade, the starters were 15. Now they're eight. Why? Because Brunson and Randall and DiVincenzo are doing a a good job with more shots. The bench, conversely, which was 14th, which is very, very good for a Tom Thibodeau team, the last two years, they were 23rd and 26th heading into this year. So all this nonsense about net rating, no, net rating against Miami last year in the playoffs, you're a minus 91 off the bench. So now the bench, the morning of the trade was 14th, and they're all the way down to 22nd in the league after 11 games. They've dropped eight spots. So how did the Knicks have to win? Well, Ananobi has added a great defensive element. Hartenstein and DiVincenzo have played their roles exceptionally well in the last month of the season before and after the trade. And then you have Brunson and Randall. Well, if you play someone really good in the first round, and the Knicks could be like literally two, three, four, five, six, or seven. I know you say it's crazy that they could be two or three, but – if you look at their schedule, you look at Milwaukee's schedule, Milwaukee owes games in the in the West, Milwaukee owes games on the road. Like Milwaukee, because of their lack of defense, could slide. I mean, it is possible, or you know, any of these main guys go down, you can slide because the standings are close. So Knicks could be two, three, four, five, six, or seven. That being said, if they play someone good and that team has someone that naturally fits Brunson on a one-on-one scale, then the Knicks must add a guy or two to their bunch right now to really make it go. Because last year, you lost in the second round because you got outscored by 91 points by the Miami bench. World B, anything on the Knicks? That's your squad. No, I th- I, I think those are great points. Uh, it's absolutely the bench – uh, took a hit, and that was the danger when the when the trade went down. That was the downfall. Um, you know, quickly it was became apparent, as Brendan mentioned, that you know they weren't going to re-sign him. That became clear. They, they had no intention of doing that, and they picked up. I think uh, OG paired with these guys uh, so far has worked out tremendous, and you know, their offense has been great. And as Brendan mentioned, they're the t- you know one or two in defense uh, this month since OG came about. Uh, one thing to keep in mind: I don't know how much of a deficiency it was, but they went from really uh, mediocre in the corner three to the best team now in the corner three, which was one of OG's strengths coming aboard. We heard because he wasn't a great; he was a good perimeter shooter by percentage, but his percentage came from the corner where he got the where he was really uh, excelled and he's been great so far. He's has the most, uh, I believe he has the most, he and he's tied for the most threes from the corner since he came in Nick. So, you know, they're really uh, right now it's fitting so well and the bench will be a problem going forward. You need guys like McBride. You need Grimes to step up. You need guys like this uh, to become a factor. And that's the question. Are they difference makers? I question it as well. 
I think the biggest part uh, of what Brendan had to say that we're going to have to keep an eye on is certainly that Fournier contract. How they take advantage of that at the trade deadline and what they can get back is going to be a huge key to this New York Knicks team moving forward. Maybe even a possible reunion with Alec Burks, who's playing exceptionally well right now with the Detroit Pistons. Would probably make a lot of sense coming off that bench. But yeah, Brendan, I'm with you. I think there, there's still one bench piece away from really being taken seriously come a seven-game playoff series. But they're able to add that one little score off the bench that they are now missing in quickly. They could be a dangerous team with this new and improved defense. And Yeah, so I did a little formula earlier in the season on another web uh, podcast. So last year, the main three guys for the Knicks in the starting lineup and quickly added up to 84 points per game. At the beginning of this season, a couple weeks in, they're struggling. Randall's off to a bad start. Brunson's off to a slow start. It was at 71. Okay? So bad production early on, 84 last year. The morning of the trade, the three guys in quickly were 82. Now, you got to measure who are the four guys now. Ken, Randall, Brunson, OG, and DiVincenzo. Can they get anywhere near 82 or 84? Oh, and by the way, who else scores the other five guys who play in the rotation? Now, Hartenstein has been better offensively inclined. He shot better from the field this year, but he's not going to get any shots. Because the center only shoots four or five times in a Tom Thibodeau offense. Then you're like looking at McBride, Grimes, and Hart. So what I'm trying to explain to you is over and over and over again, you can do a lot of math as to how they've had success. And the math right now just doesn't add up. Ross, I think your idea of Burks is good because he can play backup point. He can play on the wings. He can play in your first group. He can take certain defensive matchups. He's a good guy, and Tom likes him. Um, you look around the league, it's Clarkson, it's this guy, it's that guy. I personally like Herder for their team because Herder is kind of out of favor in Sacramento, and now he's magically being played in the starting lineup and kind yeah. of shop. The problem with Herder is he doesn't work for the Knicks. He's got two more years at 17, but he fits that Fournier 19. And Herder can play backup point and can play in the first unit and can play on the wings. They need a they need it like almost an all offensive guy. I don't want another Tibbs guy for this guy. I want a yeah. guy that's going to take like 18 shots and shoot all the time, like John Starks. I like, agree. Give me Jordan Clarkson. <laughs> give me give me an offensive dude who's just coming in and he's locked and loaded. And I think if they get that type of a guy, um, now you're talking about some good stuff in the playoffs. I heard uh, a rumor. This- oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying, all this is, you know, Knicks postseason success chances. All this is mooted if they don't get more out of Julius Randle that they did uh, each of the last two playoff appearances. Right. If if he's if he shows up like he had before, none of this is, it matters. They need him to be the regular season guy for them to have a legitimate chance in any round. I, I totally agree with that. You know, some of that was coaching. Uh, slash what Atlanta did, didn't guard Norland's Noel, didn't guard, you know, Peyton when he was in there. And so they could load up on Randall, and he did very poorly in that Atlanta series. Last year is legitimately hurt, but you're right. That's two playoff series where you're like, 
you know, what's going on? So let's get back to my 84 formula. <laughs> if you've got Brunson and Randall and OG and Dante DiVincenzo as the main four guys, how are you getting anywhere near 84 if Randall's coming in at 15, 16 and not shooting well? Absolutely. So that's why I want the gunslinger to show up here off the bench to get 16 or 18 in that role. Yeah, great points there. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think Jamal Crawford's going to be walking through that door. <laughs> but uh, with that, we've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. All right, we're back with the start of the third quarter. Let's get into some marquee matchup breakdowns as we had two heavyweight matchups this past weekend. And surprisingly, both road teams walked away victorious in those. Let's start out with the Denver Nuggets defeating the Boston Celtics in Boston, serving the Celtics their first home loss, home loss on the year on Saturday behind strong play of Jamal Murray and the Joker, who shot a combined 29 of 43 from the field, which outdueled Boston's duo of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who shot just 15 of 43. Brendan, do you think this matchup might just be an NBA Finals preview? Well, we're only halfway through the year. Yeah. Most of the guys who usually play in both rotations played in the game. And, yep. yeah, the simple duo, one guy and one guy make 14 more field goals than the other guy and the other guy. And the two Boston guys go 2 of 17 from three, and that's such a predominant way of scoring for them, especially at home. And they only made 14 on the night as a team. Um, that was a great game to watch. The fourth quarter yeah. seemed just like a playoff game. And I think it benefited Denver a little bit more when you had the starting groups or essentially the starting groups in there down the stretch. Denver's ability to trace Brown and trace Tatum before they would get the ball as a first or a second option and their ability to essentially tackle them and get away with it and have it not be called. Denver probably was better defensively down the stretch of the game. There's less air contact. It was hard to make passes. And the Celtics in the last four minutes of the game, I don't think they got very good shots. Uh, when you go to the other guys, well, you know it's all Jokic and Murray. It was all Jokic and Murray all the way through the West last year and in the finals. And there's only so much you can do about it because of Jokic's screening and passing ability, working two-man games with Murray. So, uh, you know, Denver only had one other guy in uh, double figures. Both benches only had 13 points in the game. This was a playoff game. And it could have gone either way. I mean, come on, it's a two-point game. Of but yeah. I just think D uh, Denver's defense, their body contact, their toughness, uh, won over a little bit of that Celtics clutch offense. You know, watching Jokic in action is like watching somebody who has kind of achieved total mastery of his own game and, and, and control of his team. And for a big, he puts less wear and tear on his body than anyone I've ever seen who plays so close to the hoop. He rarely jumps. And when he jumps, he jumps like two inches. He doesn't pound his knees and his ankles and his feet like a lot of bigger guys do or, say, at Zion Williamson who wants to jump out of the gym every time he goes for a rebound. Have you know? Have you ever seen anybody like Jokic in, in that position in the way he plays and is so economical with the physicality that he has to put out 
when he plays. Well, let's remember a couple of things. Number one, Nurkic was a first-round pick, and Jokic was a second-round pick. But there's a reason yeah. for that. If you looked at their body types when they were drafted, and then Jokic made a commitment, I would say, what, two or three years ago, where now he's you know, a lot more in shape, a lot less body fat, you know, just a like a real NBA sort of a strong and lean and a little bit more athletic guy at center. Now, what is one of the ways that Jokic prevents injury or energy that he uses in the game? He lets you score. If you go to the backboard in the first half of the game and he thinks that you beat him, he lets you lay it in and he gets it out quick. And then they throw it long up the floor and they're into their flow offense. He's smart about that. He doesn't try to block shots. He's one of the lowest block shot guys, if not the lowest guy, of all the 30 starting centers in the league because he doesn't try to block shots. Now, will he defend when it matters? Will he defend in the fourth quarter? Of course he will. But you're talking about a guy who's made such a major commitment to his body in the last couple of years. Yeah, it takes a lot of young guys to figure out a lot of different things, no matter if you're a Jokic or you're the 12th guy on the team, as you try to move along as a young player into a young veteran. And he's just so gifted with the pass. He makes everyone so much better. Uh, Playing in their – defending against their half-court offense is like defending against a fast break. That's how hard guys cut from the top, cut from the wing, cut from the corner. Why? Because they know the ball is going to be delivered. It's going to be on their hand. So Porter, Gordon, Caldwell Pope, they're all good cutters. You know, he and Murray are more of a dribble handoff deal, but the other three guys all cut. But they know they're going to get the ball, just like when Jason Kidd was a great point guard with the New Jersey Nets. Why did Jefferson run? Why did Martin run? Because they knew they were going to get the ball. It's the same thing with Jokic and why everyone loves to play with him. So – For Denver right now, you know, you look at the bench. Jackson playing a lot at the backup point guard spot. Jordan has played more recently on and off as the backup center. I have some, like like every Denver team with Jokic, you always have questions about the bench. But removing Bruce Brown, removing Jeff Green, I think that takes away a little bit of their bench magic, and it just means the starting lineup's just going to have to be a lot better. And with that starting lineup, uh, obviously one of the biggest things with them is their health. Do you have any concerns with those guys holding up? I think my biggest worry with with taking the Nuggets as my team to win the championship again this year would just be, can Michael Porter stay healthy? Can Jamal Murray stay healthy? Especially with the usage. We, We just talked about this being a playoff game and not much bench production for either team. But just focusing here on Denver, do you think they need to make a, a slight move, kind of like the Knicks at the deadline, to get a bench piece? Or do you think they'll continue to, to be stubborn and, and stand pat with the personnel they have on their roster? Well, I just sort of think, you know, to answer the first part of your question, we've had five different champions the last five years. We've had yep. seven or eight, I'm forgetting it right now, out of ten different finalists in the finals. Okay, so – Since March 11th, we're a little bit in the world of pandemic basketball. You have to get so lucky at first it was COVID and who was knocked out and how many games. But I still think that what you're leaning to in an 82-game season and, you know, Denver did play a shorter amount 
of number of playoff games because they ran through it, but you still had to go four rounds. And so like you're saying, where there's such a preponderance and a dependence on those five guys in the starting lineup, you know, anything can happen. And the reality of it is, like, the last two years, the East was a little bit better than the West in terms of interconference. Not this year. The West is pounding the East now in the last four or five, six weeks. So there are 12 pretty decent teams in the West. So those yeah. are teams that are going to take shots at Denver because they're the champions. And look at what Oklahoma City did. They won a close game at Denver, and then they wiped out Denver the next time they played there. So um, I think in general, it's hard to repeat. I, I think some of that is the salary cap, your depth, pandemic, no one practices, you can get hurt easier, like – I think there are a lot of different things that go in it, but the West being a lot more formidable this year, right now with 12 decent teams, uh, only 10 can make the play-in. That's a lot of tougher games night in, night out for Denver in the Western Conference. No doubt about that. And uh, let's talk about some of those teams out West that can definitely challenge the Denver Nuggets as the Oklahoma City Thunder beat the Timberwolves in Minnesota on Saturday night as well. And this was a homecoming for Chet Holmgren, but uh, just another tight matchup that went down the wire, much like the Celtics uh, game against the Nuggets. And uh, as World B had pointed out before the Wol- uh, with this Wolves team, they just didn't take care of the basketball in this game. I mean, it was down to the wire last couple of minutes. Um, Could have decided the ball game either way, but 21 turnovers to the Thunders, just eight. So the Wolves just don't take great care of the ball. So, Brendan, my question for you is, as – both these teams are two young, exciting ball clubs. Do you think – which one do you think is most ready to challenge the Denver Nuggets out west? Would you say that would be the Thunder or or the Wolves? Do you side either way on that? I'll, I'll answer it as best as I can. Someone asked me this question about three weeks ago, and they said, well, how okay. real is Minnesota? How real is Oklahoma City? All right, I can tell you this about Oklahoma City. They're 12-3 and three against the East. That is the best record in her conference out of the top eight in the East and the top eight in the West. They've played a slanted schedule home to road, but now it's evening up a little bit. But they're still eight and one against the Eastern Conference. You say, well, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because if you only play them here or there, you're not familiar with how to play them because they play five out. And when you play five out, you have to identify who are the five guys who are out and how exactly do you deal with them. So with Holmgren being so good, he's my rookie of the year. I mean, San Antonio's just not winning any games, so I'm giving it to Holmgren easily. And by him being on the team, they're a lot more real than when they just had SGA, Giddy, and then a rookie, Jalen Williams. Now, SGA – I, I got to be honest with you. I would vote for him for MVP. I, don't, I would too. I don't really worry about like Embiid is doing all these numbers. Yeah, everyone's doing all these numbers. There's like, you know, 130, 140. Indiana said 150 a couple times. Listen, Philadelphia was good last year with Embiid, and Philadelphia is good and a little bit better without Harden and with Embiid now. Jokic, same thing. Giannis has Lillard now. He's got a sidekick. 
When you think about the greatness of the 30-point games, and SGA just did some other record in 41 games of 30-point games last night, and what they're doing, because they don't really have much of a bench. So Oklahoma City has this great starting lineup. But Giddy has kind of shifted backwards because teams have figured out in the five out, we're not going to guard him. We're going to put our center on him. Or we're going to put a forward on him and have him play 10 feet off. And this has hurt them a little bit in close games to the point where they take Giddy out. But when you're talking about SGA, now you're talking about Holmgren. He's unreal in pick and pop. He's really good. That game in Denver when they pounded them, first three possessions, a three, a three. Jokic came out the garden, boop, little move around, 10-foot jumper, bam. He had already scored eight points. The game wasn't two minutes old. They're not scared. SGA no. ain't scared. Holmgren, no. for a young dude, is not scared. Jalen Williams is my favorite player in the league that no one talks about. And I kind of liked him last year more than I do now. And then he just had a five-game period where he shot like 70% from the field. And he's so good off the dribble and such a good passer. So they've got a great starting lineup. Giddy thing needs to be figured out. Lou Dort just gives himself up to play defense, to hustle. He can make enough shots that he's on the floor. But to me, their bench isn't very good. Now, they have some interesting pieces. You know, Joe can shoot, and Kendrick Williams is a tough guy to guard, and Michich doesn't play a lot behind uh, SGA, but I think that he's a pretty good prospect. He's got some stuff as a backup point guard recently. And, you, you know, you go down the list. I don't have a lot of faith in their bench. They're going to play hard, but I don't know what they're going to do. But that starting lineup is something. Now, Ross – in the playoffs, and you have time to do five out, to guard five out, like Golden State beat Boston in the finals. When you have time to figure it out, and you can figure out SGA, and you can figure out Holmgren, now what's going to happen? Because I think a lot of people who scout in the NBA would say that OKC has one of the most basic offenses going. It's like five out and some high pick and roll plays. So in terms of preparation, in terms of strategy, what will they do? if the other team can guard five out? Yeah, I think that's a great question and one they need to figure out there for sure. That's one of my concerns. And they can't rebound either. So uh, I think they need to go out and get a rebounder. Yeah, I think that Holmgren, when he comes off the floor now, like Jalen Williams plays hard and he takes charges and stuff, but he's small and their rim protection goes like right down the tubes when Chet comes off the floor. You know, to answer your question with Minnesota, yeah, they're like one of the highly most rated defensive teams. And when those two guys are in the game, if they're both around the lane, because they are, uh, you can't score in the paint. You can't offensive rebound. You might not get foul calls. The favorite play I know you all enjoy once a quarter every night in the NBA, throw it to the left quarter, drive it to the lane. Don't take a layup. Throw it to the other corner. How many times do we see this a night yeah. in the NBA? It happens all the time. Well, you can't make that pass very well against them because Towns is on the baseline deliberately, and then Gobert is on the baseline deliberately like this with our arms out like this, and yeah, you can't make that pass to shuttle it out to the other corner. So you can't score in the paint. You don't get offensive rebounds. You don't get to the foul line very much, and you can't make the three-point pass the weak side corner. Okay, they're really good defensively. What's their problem recently? They lost four or six. They started playing better. 
The bench has not been the same lately. I think that like two of their bench guys in with three of the starters, that's some of their best lineups when you're talking about balancing offense and defense. You know, obviously Reed can score in a lot of different ways. He can be used different ways. Anderson is somewhat of a facilitator. Alexander Walker has been on and off, but has been on sometimes. But lately, their bench production has gone down. So the first group of Minnesota offensively, outside of Edwards, I don't think they create very good shots. And some of it is their third from the bottom in turnovers. And they give the ball away a lot. And if you have the two bigs in the game, hey, you still have to have transition defense. So they can definitely be beaten that spot if you're going to turn the ball over. But I, I worry about the first group. Yes, you can isolate Edwards. You can flatten it out for him. But how, like, even to get Towns quality shots, sometimes they really have to work a first option, a second option, a second movement, you know, to really put him in the post or even pick and pop. It takes a lot sometimes to get him shots. You know what? Brendan, Ross is the point guard on this show, but he's going to let me bring the ball up here to start the fourth quarter because we're going to to change the subject and we're going to talk about uh, a man, a legend that you know well. uh, That would be your dad, Hubie Brown. Now, I was a colleague of Hubie for many years at ESPN, and uh, I have a couple of Hubie moments from my career, but I want to start off with the first one. One year, I was at the NBA Finals. Shane Battier, who you mentioned before, who we played with or for in Memphis – I was on the floor. Shane Battier came up during the pregame and literally runs to Hubie and kisses him. It wasn't a handshake. It wasn't a hug. It was a kiss. What is it about guys who played for Hubie that would cause some of them to literally shower him with love like that? I could do about 20 minutes about the young group (laughs) that we had year one in Memphis and then year two in Memphis. And I wrote about this at the beginning of the season, like, how much fun that group was. And we had a lot of good young veterans and we had a lot of guys flourish that did not play well, or there was something missing somewhere else. Jason Williams never played in the fourth quarter in Sacramento. He was great for us at the end of games. And I called the plays and I had a lot of confidence in him. And James Posey was a malcontent everywhere else. And he was like our best player by the end of year two, you know, in a two way deal. I think that most of those young guys, uh, Stromile, Swift, and Hubie are very close still. I just said that Stromile, Swift, and Hubie Brown are still very close still <laughs> because Stromile's back in his hometown and he's coaching the team and he felt like he could call Hubie to ask for advice and everything else. It was very much a family situation. We had young veterans. Uh, some guys are just quality people and quality players. Uh, just about everyone out of our 15 was a delight to have and worked really hard. So to answer your question, Hubie's just honest. We used to meet in a circle every day before practice. And he said the circle was a military thing, so he would judge everyone's eyesight and their body language. And he knew the two or three guys who were pissed off at him before we even started. So everything was honesty. Um, Earl Watson was like, a part of my family. He's like the closest to us out of the group. He said something once in the media that didn't jive. And he had a point to what he said. So you just said in the middle of the circle, go ahead, explain yourself. You know, what? It, what's your point? And that's how we dealt with everything. So everyone was honest. No one got lied to. Everyone knew when they were going to play, when they weren't going to play and the whole deal. 
And I'll tell you a funny one. Drew Gooden only played for us for about two months the first year, and then Jerry traded him for what eventually became Mike Miller. And Mike Miller is terrific for us. And Drew Gooden said in the Washington PR room like three years ago before a game to me, he goes, your dad is the only grown man I will let kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Brendan, I, my memory of, of uh, your father, Hubie, goes back to you know his time as a Knicks coach back in the early, mid-'80s when he had uh, Bernard King – uh, superstar there, and then eventually uh, had Patrick Ewing for a season or two. What was what was your dad's? Uh, not necessarily wanting to speak for him, but since what was his impression of his time uh, with as a Knicks coach during that time? They had really some underrated success there, especially in 1984. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that go into that. Um... Hubie is one of only three New York Knicks coaches who ever won a playoff series their first two seasons. You can do the trivia on that to get the other two. But it hasn't been a lot of Knicks coaches that have had success in the playoffs, and Hubie very much did those first two years. And you know in 84 uh, when they did what they did and then they pushed Boston all the way to seven. And Maxwell and Mikhail, they said, well, you know, Bernard's not getting 40 on us. And he got 40 on him three times in the series. Um, the excitement that was generated a little bit by the first year, because they're only like 14 and 29, and they ended up making the playoffs. And then they beat the Nets. And then they played Philadelphia very close in a 4-0 sweep. None of the games were decided by like more than seven or eight points. That launched into the second year. And the second year was for real. The second year was very much like Knicks fans always say, well, you know, the 90s Knicks are the best, and this is why, and I love Starks, I love Mason. No, the 84 Knicks team was very much like a 90s Knicks team, okay? And you had a stud in Bernard King, who's probably obviously a more prolific scorer than Patrick, although Patrick was a great first option on those 90s teams. But when you look at the rest of the starting lineup, they were really well-balanced. Billy Cartwright, before he broke his foot, was a very good score, an 18-point sort of a score. And, you know, then they go to the bench, and they played five guys all together off the bench, which would never happen nowadays. And, you know, with Daryl Walker, Trent Tucker, Lewis Orr, Ernie Grunfeld, and Marvin Webster protecting the basket, they played like a college team. And they ran you to death, and they trapped you and pressed you and got you at a full court and half court. And so it was this hard-working team. The 84 team is very much like a 90s team. And then everything went wrong, <laughs> and everyone got hurt. And all of Hubie's good work and his great assistant coaches, he had many of them there in New York, um, the injuries were too much. It was a different time with the salary cap. You could only replace, you know, some of your key guys, Chuck Robinson, Cartwright, then Bernard gets hurt, Webster was out. Like, they're playing with CBA guys on the front line, and it was a shame because I guess a lot of people only remember the end of Hubie, and then he gets, you know, fired at Thanksgiving in year five. Um, but to kind of flip it around a little bit and go back to you, Bruce, um, a lot of guys who are younger guys – who played for UB early in their career, did not like playing for him. I can make a long list for you. But after they were in the NBA for six to eight to ten years, 
and then they had played for five or six or seven coaches. A lot of guys, a couple of key guys, you know who I'm talking about, they came back and said, you know what, Hubie was my best coach. But I didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the time because I was a younger guy and I was trying to figure out my deal. I was trying to figure out my thing. So I think it all comes back to honesty. And then when there's an honesty about how you're supposed to play, okay, this is a good shot on our team. This is a bad shot. This is your defensive rotation. This is not. Um, I think you see a lot of that with Tom, with the Knicks now. And Tom just passed Hubie on the uh, wins list, and Tom has done terrific in his time here in terms of accountability and how you're supposed to play. And I think they've got a, a lot of guys that are called Tom guys, you know, who are going to defend first and be good offensive players twice. And I, I just think that's why people like Hubie as a coach. And even if he was extremely hard on them, which he was in Atlanta and New York with the pressing and the trapping, et cetera, um, how much they learned about basketball, how much that carried for a lot of these guys for the rest of their career, plus all the really good assistant coaches who worked for Hubie, um, that was a lot. Well, you know, I think that's a characteristic of great coaches because nobody ever got better by being told, hey, great job, big fella, as opposed to giving them some feedback that comes from a, a good hearted place. I mean, Chauncey Billups told me the same basic thing about Larry Brown, no relation, that he used to drive, you know, Chauncey crazy. But he said, once I realized I couldn't please him, we both sort of settled into a certain rhythm and, and we kind of went from there. But another great coach that I worked with really closely for a long time was Dr. Jack Ramsey. And we used to have these newsmaker luncheons at ESPN. And one time where sports and TV icons would come and have lunch in a big conference room with a couple hundred people. And they'd be on a little podium telling stories. So one time Hubie was there for a newsmaker luncheon with Dr. Jack. And I think somebody in the crowd asked the first question. Okay. And I don't remember who answered first, whether it was Jack or Hubie. But they answered, and then they just kept going into this stream of consciousness back and forth, story after story. I don't think anybody ever asked another question. It was just these two old war horses telling stories, and we're all sitting there like, like this. It was just me. You know, I mean, I'm an older guy. I'm 66. So I've been following the game for a really long time. So to me, I was like in like hoop heaven listening to this. And with all the stories that those guys could tell, What's your definitive story about your dad? Um, I'm going to tell a different sort of a funny one. Okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, number one, before that, uh, when Hubie was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and there is a difference. If you win the Kurt Gowdy Award, it's the highest award you can get print or electronic and it's incredible and Mark Spears just won it but that does not make you a member of the basketball hall of fame it is not until you are inducted that you become a basketball uh member of the hall of fame so Hubie had to go through the process he won the Gowdy in 2000 and then he was inducted to the hall of fame in 2005 as a contributor okay not as a coach not as a clinician or you know Different things. He was a contributor. That's what he's really in as. His inducting guy, who do you think? Has to be someone from the Hall of Fame who walked up on stage with him. 
Dr. Jack. Dr. Jack Ramsey. That's exactly correct. Okay. And those two guys nice, Bruce. traveled the world and taught basketball all around the place. And Dr. Jack, quite possibly the most unreal guy in terms of fitness, you know, in relation to your age. So Stromile Swift, you know, was somewhat disappointing as the number two pick before we got to coach him. And then he played great for us. And the year we won 50 games, he averaged, I think, about 10 points off the bench. And he was the only guy I'd go and talk to, like, right, right, right before the game, after the national anthem. I would tell him about who was going to guard him. Just shoot, go after him, do this, do that. Tonight's your night, tonight's your night. All right, so he needed a little bit of encouragement, but he delivered that year many, many, many nights, not just offensively, but defensively, because we could play anyone in the final group. We could play anyone in the final group, and Stroh and Lorenz and Wright were like half and half in the final group. So Stroh bounces around for a while. I think he was in Houston, and um, he got traded to the Nets at the deadline. So the New Jersey guys like kind of do a pseudo interview with him when he gets there, and they do a lot of different questions. You know, what do you think your role is? This is what we think you're going to do. Bah, 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 bah. All right, they go all the way through. So now they're asking him like personal questions, and he said, "Well, the coach says, well, who's the favorite coach you ever played for?" Uh, and he busts out laughing, Stromo. Bust out laughing. And he says, oh, that's easy. Hubie Brown. So everyone in the room is like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> Stromile, Hubie, no way. And so the coach asked, well, why? And Stromile said, well, I used to try to get to practice on time every day because his stories at the beginning of practice were so good, and I wanted to hear them every day. <laughs> Three weeks pass. Okay? Three weeks pass. And Stromo, unfortunately, had this knack of not really playing well for any other coaching staff except for ours. So they bring him in. They say, listen, you know, we're trying to play you as the backup center, trying to give you minutes. Why aren't you playing – the way that you did in Memphis, why, why can't you play like that here? So Stromile stood up and he said to the coach, you don't love us. Hubie loved us. And he walked out of the room. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. That's awesome. Well, and they're Brendan- still tight. They're still tight. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Well, I got one final question for you here, Brendan, on Hubie. And, uh, of course, he's still calling NBA games for ESPN at 90 years old of age and, uh, you know, continues to do an outstanding job on the call. So, you knowing him better than anyone, are you still surprised that he's continuing to do it? And for those that aren't in the industry, I don't think people realize this is not an easy task, not just calling the actual game, but the prep work, the travel, He's 90 years old. Are you surprised he's still doing it? And what do you think still drives your dad to to call games? Well, he had a funny quote recently. I think Richard Dyche uh, out of the uh, Athletic 
named him the sportscaster of the year. And there was a quote really right at the very beginning of that article. And that was one of the best articles that's ever been written about him as a broadcaster. And it said something like QB said, well, I'm 90 years old, but I don't like wake up every day and say, hey, I'm 90 years old or whatever. <laughs> like He was like, most of my friends are dead. I should be doing something. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. It's that yeah. simple. And I go back and read the article if you get a chance and you'll see all these like really different quotes out of him that you might not usually see. Uh, can he still do it? Yes, he can. When he locks onto the game in the second, the third, and the fourth quarter, he can do it. He works with all great partners, okay, at ESPN, and they all do it a different way with him. Uh, Mark Jones was his longtime partner. He did his last game with them, and they have a nice ambiance, even though Mark is being jazzy and sassy doing the game. Like, they still connect in some way, and they sound good together. When Ryan Rucco does a game with Hubie, Ryan is kind of like hyperactic energy and that makes yeah. Hubie be more hyperactive himself and more energetic himself so that's good when he works at Ryan but the guy that he works the best with to me is Dave Pash who he's worked with the last couple of years and maybe because Dave also works with the Walton <laughs> Dave has a knack of knowing how to work with Hubie now especially at 90 and I mean this in a positive way and they have a very nice friendship uh, even though Dave lives out in Arizona, is based out of there. And they really respect each other. They really enjoy each other. But Dave knows if his voice is up or down or if it's strong or if Hubie's just kind of wandering somewhere. Like Dave is right on it. Like Dave works with Hubie very, very well. And I think that Hubie accepts all of that. Uh, I know that early in the game he wants to get in his stats. That's how he's been doing it forever. Um, okay, but once it gets to the second and the third and the fourth quarter, if you're someone who really likes basketball and you're listening to all the announcers national, ESPN, TNT, NBA, TV, whatever, go ahead and rate me up all the analysts about who's really talking about the game and who's really giving you something in a close game between good teams with marquee players and excellent coaches. There's so much to dive into in that situation of everything I just presented to you. And that's why he still likes to do it. Just like I enjoyed working 27, 28 years in the NBA. Like, no matter what the case is, it could be right now, Charlotte and San Antonio. If you really love the NBA, you'll find a way watching that game or figuring out that game as it goes to enjoy it. Or you might come up with, this guy can't play. That's very important in the NBA. Not who can play, who can't play, who can't coach, like all that kind of stuff. So I think that Hubie is always going to want to promote the game. Once again, it comes back to the honesty. He wants to pump the young player. He also wants to say the young player will become even greater if he can do this. He's fair. I don't think he tries to make criticisms of players and coaches because you know, Ross, that he watches two or three games of each team like this Saturday's got Denver at New York. Or excuse me, Miami at New York. He's going to watch Miami three times. He's going to watch New York three times. So he knows in his head, you know, what everyone's about. But now, what's the best situation for me to roll out this knowledge? 
And I, you can tape anyone you want. You can tape all the announcers at all those places. QB in the second, the third, and the fourth. You want him for a close game. Will he make a mistake here or there? Yeah, he's 90. But when it comes to trying to explain what's going on and what could happen at the end of the game, he's still as good as anyone out there. And I defy anyone to tell me anything any differently. And so that's why he still does it. Now, what's the problem? Trying to get him there and trying to get him home. He is 90, okay? He's got to get on a plane. He's got to get back on the plane. But as for the basketball part of it, his energy, uh, his love of his partners, you know, Mark Jones, Ruko, uh, you know, Dave Pash, anyone else he's paired up with, um, he really uh, still likes it. I think we all feel that, Ross. I think when you walk into an NBA arena, it can be three, four hours before the game. You're just so excited because you're home. You're in an NBA arena. And then if you're doing the playoffs like Bruce used to, you know, with these major, major series and major, major games, it's so exciting just to walk in. And that's the greatness of the NBA. So, Ross, that's why I think he continues to do it. He probably gets a little rise. He won't say it. He probably gets a little pumped. He won't say it when he's in there and he gets to see people and talk to people about the teams. And I think he has a respect for the young player, realizing it's a little different now. And uh, that's what he tries to do. Hey, Brendan, that's a couple right. minutes ago when you said, okay, it was just like Hubie says. Okay. <laughs> you definitely were channeling your dad on that one. No, I, I, come on. Now, I, uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. I've even thought of like how to do his eulogy, like you know. So now you're St. Peter, you know. You're now you're Boston, or now you're Casey Jones, or whatever. But can't use the painted area, um, you know. I didn't use almost any of his stuff. Yeah, some of my inflection would be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay is a universal expression. Everybody gets to use it. No, everyone's using okay a lot now. Okay, we can do another forty-eight minutes on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Brennan, this has been a lot of fun. We certainly appreciate you stopping by the 48, po- uh, 48 Minutes podcast to share your knowledge with us, share some stories, and uh, certainly want all our listeners to go ahead and check out Brendan uh, on SNY, The Putback with Ian Begley. Uh, Brendan, thanks again, as always, and uh, thanks to all of you that have tuned in. Uh, we'll be back next week to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. And until then, take care. Thanks a lot.